Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 936. To begin today's program, David Lorelo welcomes Len Casper, radio voice of the Chicago White Sox, and Lenny DiNardo, former Major League pitcher and current analyst at Nesson. The trio begin by talking about some baseball, including Lenny's Major League debut against the Yankees, but most of this conversation turns to the cross-section of the game and music. The Lens discuss players in the league who are also musicians, such as Anthony Rizzo, John Lester, and Yoan Mankata, as well as some former greats that were able to get more into the hobby. Barry Zito was a guy that, that's always been playing, and he's taken that to the next level as well. You know, after retirement, a lot of these ballplayers are just moving on to the next career. But yeah, there's there's a ton of ballplayers that want to be musicians. There's a bunch of musicians that want to be ballplayers, frankly. I've heard it all, all the time. Like, man, I wanted to be a ballplayer. And then this is kind of what I turned into, a musician. After that, Jay Jaffe is joined by C. Trent Rosecrans of The Athletic to discuss the legend of Joey Votto and the surging Cincinnati Reds. Both Jay and Trent find themselves writing about Votto recently, and how could they not, as the nearly 38-year-old has seemingly taken another impressive step in an already remarkable career. Jay and Trent discuss things like the feelings associated with covering a star in decline, Votto pushing himself into the NL MVP discussion, the Reds' favorable schedule down the stretch, and being reminded to never doubt Mr. Votto. I thought that maybe he could be better than he was last year. I didn't think I would be here in the middle of August saying, you know, he's in the thick of the MVP race. <laughs> right. That blows my mind. And and as someone whose mantra for many years is never, ever doubt Joey Votto, I had finally started to doubt Joey Votto, and once again, I'm wrong. But before we get to these excellent conversations, I must deliver you that weekly reminder to consider checking out the Fangraphs.com shop. Yes, we have merch, but even more enticing is that Fangraphs ad-free membership, good for blazing fast load times at our site, as well as helping your favorite baseball analytics pals keep the lights on. We love what we do, and we hope you do too. We couldn't do it without you. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorela. My guests are Len Casper, radio voice of the Chicago White Sox, and Lenny DiNardo, former big league left-hander, now working as a TV analyst for the Boston Red Sox. Uh, gentlemen, thanks for coming on to uh, Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having me. Thanks, David. Yeah, before we get rolling, maybe a quick heads up for our listeners is that we are going to be talking some baseball in this segment. But more than anything, we are going to talk music. Len and Lenny both play the guitar. And on top of that, they are both bona fide music nerds. I don't think either of you gentlemen will push back too much on that claim. <laughs> I certainly will not. <laughs> I'm a proud card-carrying member of the music nerd community. <laughs> Which is, a, which is a quality attribute. Lenny, let's start with you. I actually have a baseball question that segues into music. You made your major league debut with the Red Sox in 2004. You were in Yankee Stadium. You pitched the ninth inning and retired the side 1-2-3. Uh, uh, who were the three batters you faced? Uh, let's see. It was Gary Sheffield, Hideki Matsui, and Bernie Williams. I believe that was the order. Yeah, yeah, that was the order. <laughs> that was the order. Uh, you did K Matsui. Bernie Williams, the third player that you faced and recorded, I think might be as good of a musician as he was a hitter. Oh, I, I totally agree. He's one of those guys where I mean, he could have gone any route, really. I've talked to him about this, and he was in a performing arts school as a, as a young child, and his 
his folks really steered him in the direction of being able to to not only be great on the athletic field, but kind of in the arts as well. And he's a really bright guy, really well-spoken, and uh, he's he's taken to the guitar after retirement even more, uh, putting out albums and being able to to just play circles around everybody that he's around on stage, to be honest. So he, again, if you're talking about me and, and Bernie in the same sentence in music, it's it's I laugh at that because I started playing guitar in the minor leagues, and he's been doing it for a long, long time. Uh, really, really well, and uh, it's not easy for me. And he's the type of player that makes it look extremely easy. It's it's very difficult. Yeah, Len, you should weigh in on Bernie as well because you have been at the Hot Stove Cool Music concert, of course, with him on stage. You know, that's the the benefit concert that Theo Epstein and Peter Gammons have been doing for for a few decades now. Yeah, Bernie is, I think he was a Hall of Fame player, and he's a Hall of Fame musician, in my opinion. I've had a chance to be on stage with Bernie and Lenny, and the thing about Bernie is that he will join songs and bands and groups uh, during Hot Stove, and he'll have no idea what the song is, and he'll just pick it up. Like, he's that good to, like, join a song in the middle of the arrangement, and he just, someone can yell at him, A, B. D sharp and he just he just goes and then they'll be like hey take the solo <laughs> and it sounds great he is a natural as Lenny said but I have to go back to to your major league debut Lenny to face those three got those three guys I mean talk about a a soft landing I mean <laughs> most guys you know you face at least a couple guys that you go oh I think I remember him I mean those are three amazing big league hitters that had to be quite a, a moment for you you might not have faced three tougher hitters in order the rest of your career. I know it, it was great. I mean, it was, I, I can look back on it now and kind of breathe, but at the time I was holding my breath, basically the whole inning, you know, coming from the, the bullpen where everybody are, they're, they're screaming obscenities to put it mildly, <laughs> telling me to go back to AAA and, and this and that, and I'm doing my best to throw strikes to the catcher and boom, the uh, the half of the, the half inning ends, and then the gate opens, and you're you're in this gigantic bowl. You're running out towards home plate, and the adrenaline's flowing. I I couldn't feel my legs. I'm I'm surprised that I didn't trip at some point getting to the mound. You know, I get to the mound, and and Tito's there holding the ball. Doug Mirabelli's in the game at this point because we were we were ahead. Derek Lowe threw a great game. I want to say we were up by seven or eight runs at this point in the ninth inning. So Tito put me in a situation where I couldn't goof up too much, I guess. I always appreciated him for doing that. And I got on the mound and I'm warming up and, and I'm trying to tell myself it's 60 foot six inches. This is the same distance I've been throwing on since I was 13 years old. And uh, I was able to hold it together and uh, I, I grounded Sheffield out to third base twice or I'm sorry I grounded him out and my third out uh, Bernie was to third base and, and Bellhorn made some absolutely great plays uh, sandwiched between that strikeout and uh, it was an amazing feeling and when it was over I was able to breathe and take it in and enjoy it and you know one thing a lot of baseball players talk about they, they don't really enjoy it in the moment because you're always kind of competing you're always trying to stay there you're always trying to get better and and uh for me, a lot of my my thrill of playing the game happened after retirement. I can kind of look back and say, man, that was that was a lot of fun. But the type of ball player I was at the time was uh, I was always trying to hold on. A lot of ball players are like that. I'm trying to just stay there for as long as I can. 
the last time I was the hardest thrower, I was 12 years old, put it that way. So <laughs> uh, I had to get guys out in different different ways. But yeah, that first downing was amazing. And again, I can look back on it now, but at the time it was pretty pretty hectic and, 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 and crazy to think about. You know, Lenny, one, two, three, like his three really good hitters, but he mentions two really nice defensive plays uh, and a strikeout, right? And, you know, we're doing this uh, fan graphs podcast, so... You know, there's a lot about, you know, missing bats, right? So the, the strikeout's good. Uh, balls in play can be perilous. Uh, it's possible. I think Lenny would admit that it could have been two men on in that inning. But at the end of the day, a pitcher's job is to get three outs. And whether he gets a lot of help from his defenders or not, you know, you got the job done that night. And I often try to remind myself when we talk about expected uh, batting average in terms of exit velocity and maybe a great defensive play years later decades later as we sit here and talk about your one two three ninth inning it's it's a clean perfect inning for a relief pitcher it doesn't really matter how hard the ball was hit it doesn't necessarily matter that mark bellhorn made two good plays the bottom line is you got the job done right i think we have to remind ourselves as stat nerds that whatever the expected batting average on the balls that were hit there were outs. <laughs> yeah, and that, I think that goes to a pitcher's plan. You know, a, a lot of times these days, especially, and it, it's changed in the last 15 or 20 years, but a lot of uh, pitchers these days are, are trying, or to me, it seems like they're going for the strikeout. There's a lot of elevated fastballs, just really digging deep and throwing hard. And uh, I was talking to Jim Corsi about this the other day. Whatever happened to that well-placed two-seam fastball in the outer half? I don't want to say it's not happening because it's there. But you're seeing more oftentimes than not just four-seam fastballs right down the middle, high around the neck. And they're getting chases every now and then. But pitching to contact with a two-seam fastball away is such a great pitch. You know, being able to go away to get batters out and to pitch in to show effect is, is, uh, is pitching, you know. And you see pitchers a lot of times these days when they come into their own and they're successful – it's, it's them realizing that they can throw in the zone, pitching to contact, using movement, and using the corners along with elevating and throwing the curveball down. But being able to have that little movement at the end, that late moving action on the outer half is, is so effective. Man, you music nerds are turning this into a baseball podcast all of a sudden, Manny. <laughs> what, what is up with that? Yeah, I actually have a, a hard baseball question for Len, but first a quick thing back on Bernie Williams. One of my favorite moments when I saw Bernie, his most recent time at Hot Stove, was when one of the all-star band uh, groups was up there, and I started to hear a song, and I thought, man, is this Black Sabbath? And I think it was the song War Pigs from one of their earlier records. And it was, and the guitar solo was played by Bernie, who really ripped it. And I recall thinking, has someone told me 15, 20 years ago, watching Bernie play center field, that someday I would hear him playing a solo on that song on stage? I'd have thought, man, you're on acid. So it was, it was crazy. And as great a center fielder as he was, he, he is really truly is as gifted and as comfortable on stage uh, as anyone I've been around. And I think Lenny would agree. And uh, we should also say one of the most generous, sweetest guys you'll ever meet. I wouldn't say I was a Yankees fan when he played at all, uh, but I always appreciated the way he went about his business. And I think every guy who ever played with Bernie or against him would say 
that he was all class. And uh, it's it's really cool to to get to know a guy like him. One hundred percent agree. He's uh, you know if you took a poll of Red Sox fans, their favorite Yankee player. I mean, he's got to be the top two. I mean, honestly, the, for what he's done for the community is in regards to hot stove, cool music. And like you mentioned, the generosity, giving his time, saying hello to just random people throughout the hot stove event. Really, really nice guy. You know, if you want to talk about his playing, he's not the type of guy that he just uses chords. He uses theory. And that's why he's so good. It's why he it's why he can jump in on really any different genre. Just give me the key and he'll just play around everybody else because he's so proficient in regards to music theory. And I could not tell you one thing about theory. So just tell me the tell me the cowboy chords and I'll see if I can keep up. That that's my theory. Now Bernie, I think, plays guitar maybe like uh like Greg Maddox pitched. He really does. That's a that's a great analogy. <laughs> yeah, so Len, this baseball question, and, and maybe you you can nail this. Having Lenny remember names like Matsui Sheffield and Williams in his debut was pretty easy. Can you remember the first batters? that you called a big league game for? <laughs> well, I do remember the general date. I think it was April 25th or 26th of 1999. It was Brewers Pirates from Three Rivers Stadium. And I could not tell you the first batter or pitcher, but I do know Jeff Cirillo uh, hit an opposite field home run for Milwaukee, and that was the my first home run call. And I wasn't very good that day. Uh, I wasn't nearly as good as Lenny was in his big league debut. But I think I showed enough potential that they re they allowed me to come back uh, and do another game later. So I remember just a handful of particulars uh, from that a Saturday, crisp Saturday afternoon from Pittsburgh. But I do remember Cirillo hit a home run. And I gave a little nod to my hero, Ernie Harwell, the longtime Tiger broadcaster, his home run call. I said, and that ball is long gone. That was his home run call. Fantastic. Yeah, Lenny. Uh, and I guess, actually, Len, you can answer this uh, if you would like as well. Which players uh, that you've been around are the most notable musicians, guitar players, vocalists, etc.? Because we, know, we all know that baseball players want to be musicians, just as all musicians seem to want to be baseball players. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's obviously, like uh, when I came up with the Red Sox, I had a uh, the guitar and, and relative age in common with Bronson Arroyo, so we we tend to stick together. Back then, we would always have our guitars on the road. So he's and he's doing it still. He's kind of touring, I guess now. Barry Zito was a guy that that's always been playing, and he's taken that to the next level as well. You know, after retirement, a lot of these ball players are just moving on to the next career. But yeah, there's there's a ton of ball players that want to be musicians. There's a bunch of musicians that want to be ball players. Frankly, I've heard it all all the time. Like, man, I wanted to be a ball player, and then this is kind of what I turned into a musician. And uh, I don't know why that is, but uh, I remember listening to music as a kid. There was always music going around in my house growing up, and and there was always baseball. We had pictures of Ted Williams on the wall mixed in with our family pictures. It was almost like he was a a member of the family. So baseball and music is probably just passed down from a parent. And uh, that's the only thing I can I can think is the, the, the binding thread, you know? Yeah. And I would say, um, you know, I, obviously Bronson is a guy who's a terrific musician and I've been lucky to be around him a bunch. Uh, we've talked a lot about Bernie. You know, a lot of players take guitars on the road. I think it's a it's a good thing when you have a lot of isolation on the road in your hotel room to to pick at a guitar. So you know, I've seen John Lester on a on a plane with a guitar. Uh, Anthony Rizzo uh, plays piano. Yoan Moncada 
with the White Sox, has a single out that's pretty fun. And he, he sings too. So um, I've heard a lot of really bad karaoke on a, uh, on, on a charter flight here and again, which is always kind of fun. And I'll take it another place, David. You know, the modern, and I don't know if Lenny had this as much as, as we do now. It used to be more of a headphone league, I think. Well, now, you know, you've got these, these little, you know, iPod type, you know, Amazon, whatever they call them, things where it's just like a little ball. And these things are so loud. They're these big speakers, right? And, you know, in one part of the plane, it'll be classic rock. And another part of the plane, it'll be rap. And then you'll hear some salsa music. And then you'll hear some show tunes. And this is like at three in the morning, you know, in a cross-country flight. And so it's really interesting to me to just listen to what a 25-year-old kid from Ohio is listening to, or a 32-year-old first baseman born in Cuba, and what songs he likes to to sing uh, and, and do the karaoke bit. And it's very eclectic. And it, it, the one thing I found is guys like a lot of older music. You know, it's not always just the new stuff. And sometimes when I hear stuff that I was into when I was a kid, and I'm 50, and I, and I kind of connect with a 26-year-old baseball player, I think it's really neat. I love yeah. hearing that. There's there's uh, There was a conversation I had with Gabe Kapler a couple years ago, and, and we were talking baseball, and then we kind of ventured into music a little bit. And, and he was looking for stuff to listen to. And and I don't know why I, I mentioned this, but I said, hey, have you ever heard of a guy named Dave Van Ronk? And he's, and I sent him a YouTube clip or something. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Dave Van Rock, but he's a pretty interesting sounding voice, really, really good guitar player. And Gabe, he's one of the most eclectic, he, he listens to everything. And, and he ended up thanking me. He's like, I love Dave Van Rock. And he, he was listening to rap music from, you know, just, just so many different things. But that's a great point. Everybody listens to different stuff and you can kind of Turn yourself on to different things by listening. Because I'm always asking people, and Dave, you'll know this. I, I ask you, hey, what are you listening to today? And I'll kind of make a note so I can listen to it later. Because there's so much stuff out there that I wouldn't have heard without kind of reaching out or kind of listening to what everybody else is, is turning on to at that point. No, for sure. I sat down just a few days ago with Red Sox rookie Bobby Dahlbeck to talk music. I'm not sure if that interview will run before or after we record this podcast. We're talking on Friday the 13th. But Bobby turned me on to a band that I actually hadn't been familiar with and that I listened to on my walk back from the park that day, which was Goose, a jam band out of Connecticut. I don't know if either of you are familiar with them. I have not. Nope. Yeah, very good stuff. Some very interesting influences and, and very much a, a jam band. What are the two of you listening now? What have you you know, what is new on your playlist? Well, I'll, I'll go first. Um, you know, again, I'm, I'm older than Lenny, but I have a 20-year-old son and you know, he's very into kind of the current trends. And, and my thing is, I always want to stay current. I, I don't want to be the guy who only says, you know, who's next is the greatest rock album ever and anyone who disagrees is wrong. I do believe that, but, you know, I, I still believe that, that rock and roll music can get better and you can still hear stuff that inspires you. So, you know, I have a lot of different apps on my phone. I have one called Amazing Radio and they have a U UK channel and a, and a US channel and they just have playlists. And so if I'm prepping for a game, I'll just pop on one of the playlists and invariably if I hear 10 songs and these are new bands in a lot of cases, bands nobody's ever heard of, I'll find two or three songs I really like and I'll share them with friends of mine and I become fans of those bands. So, 
you know, I couldn't even tell you what I'm listening to, David, but I will tell you that what I like to find is stuff that I've never heard of and bands I've not heard before. And I think it's really important to to make sure we support the young bands that remind us of the bands we loved back in the day, because as much as I love the replacements and the Beatles and the Kinks and the Stones and the Who and all those great bands, you know, I, I, I still like discovering something new to this day. I agree completely. I love going back to the old stuff and, and Who's Next is, in fact, the best album ever. But <laughs> I'm, I, I'm currently, there's a few things I'm listening to now. I just got into Sunvolt's new album. I don't know if you guys have, are familiar with uh, Jay Farrar and Sunvolt. The new album is really, really good. There's a guy named Eric D. Johnson who used to be in a band called The Shins. He's got his own band called Fruit Bats. That is uh, really good. Uh, he actually, with Fruit Bats, is basically just him. He he covered Smashing Pumpkin's Siamese Dream, and it turned out really, really good. He did that over the pandemic. I recommend that. There's another kind of more current band called Cigarettes After Sex, and it's kind of ethereal, jammy, a lot of reverb. Listening to them. There's an early 90s band called Ride, late 80s, early 90s called Ride, that I can always go to for good music. But yeah, I think that's... Uh, oh yeah, Eric G. Johnson also has another band called Bonnie Light Horseman, which is which is uh, a really good album. They just have one out so far, but all good stuff. Wow, and a few of those I will have to check out. My favorite new band that I discovered recently is out of, I believe out of London, UK, Dry Cleaning. I mentioned them to Lenny at Fenway the other day. They have a song that really stands out to me called Scratch Card Lanyard, if any of you listeners want to cue that up, that up and check it out. And I can tell you, I heard it the other day. You played it for me. Very Pixies influence as far as the Joey Santiago sound guitar, the Kim Deal bass line. It's, uh, it was good stuff. No, for sure. For sure. Yeah. A year, maybe two years ago, I listed my picks for, you know, the best ever baseball songs in a, a Sunday Notes column. If I'm remembering correctly, and I maybe should have looked this up, I probably put the baseball projects past time and Barbara Manning's Doc Ellis on top. I think there was probably an Isotopes punk rock baseball club song on there. What, Len and Lenny, do you consider the best baseball songs? Pastime by the Baseball Project. You nailed it, David. Uh, to me, that's that's my favorite baseball song uh, of all time. And uh, as an aside, I will throw out a couple of uh, bands. Actors, uh, all caps, A-C-T-O-R-S. Check them out. They're from uh, British Columbia. And Sam Fender, a singer-songwriter from uh, England, kind of has a Water Boys meets uh, War on Drugs sound. Really, really good. Nice. I, I For some reason, I love the Baseball Project. They're great folks. And every time I listen to them, for some reason, I'm always turning to Pasquale on the perimeter. That song rocks. I, I just feel like it's got such a great a great beat to a great rhythm, great driving rhythm. I actually sat down with Mike Mills back in, I want to say 2014. And, and this, uh, I guess, was a spring training game. And it pertains to today because he was asking me how pitchers doctor baseballs and what they're doing as far as sticky stuff back then. And uh, I, I kind of gave him a... A sticky stuff 101 lesson on talking how uh, about where they hide it how they put it on what they're using this and that and uh the next day he got in touch and he said hey i just wrote a song called stuff about pitchers doctoring baseballs and uh, i think it's going to be on the next album according to, <laughs> to the last i heard uh so look for that 
<laughs> that is that's cool. And you should get a credit on that song, certainly on the liner notes, right? <laughs> well, they've played it a couple times live. It's on YouTube, and basically the lyrics are word for word what I was telling Mike. So <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to get a credit. I don't want one or expect one, but it's funny how he can just kind of pick up certain things. And it's not like he was taking notes other than in the mental form, but it's just word for word of what I was telling him as far as how they doctor baseballs and what they're using. So it's pretty incredible recall on his part. Yeah, Len, you mentioned earlier Ernie Harwell being your hero. You, of course, grew up in Michigan. Michigan has a very rich musical history. Who are some of your favorites from your home state? Well, the Detroit rock scene is uh, pretty pretty unmatched. The Motown scene, of course, uh, was was huge. One of my favorite bands is the Romantics. Uh, I've seen them live more than any other band. And I, I was trying to figure out how many states I've seen the Romantics. I've seen them in Florida, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, probably a couple of other states as well. Um, gotten to meet the guys in the band, which is really cool. Clem Burke from Blondie actually played in the Romantics for uh, several years, and I got to meet him backstage once. That was that was a, a thrill. But like the Dirt Bombs and the Paybacks, uh, a couple of garage rock bands from Detroit. The Dirt Bombs are interesting, um, and I really hope you guys check them out. The lead singer's name is Mick Collins, and he's got this amazing voice. They had two drummers, two bass players, and a guitar player. So it's a unique sound to say the least, but it's got this punk and then kind of almost a Motown Marvin Gaye type thing going on. And the melding of those two genres is is unique to say the least. And uh, they were really big kind of back in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, I don't think they're recording or playing right now, but hopefully they'll get back together at some point. But to to see in a small club two drum kits, two bass players, and a lead singer with a guitar, I mean it's a it's a pretty booming sound. <laughs> the fact that you said two two bass players, I, I love that. There was a band I used to listen to, or I still listen to, that had two bass players. One was kind of the rhythm, one was the lead. Is geez, what is the band from England? Uh, they have that song "Kill Your Television." It's uh, Ned's Atomic Dustbin. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah, 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 yeah. They've got that lead bass player. I don't know if, if it sounds like that. Is it? Isn't the MC Five from Michigan? Yep, they're from Detroit. Nice. I had a chance to meet um, in a minor league game. I got and I actually got him to sign a baseball. Mitch Ryder. Wow. I was in A ball and it was like, yeah, Mitch Ryder standing right next to me watching the game. I guess they were playing the field right after. Yeah, Mitch Ryder and the Detroit Wheels, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, the Stooges too. Oh wow. Yeah, Iggy Pop, Alice Cooper, obviously the White Stripes. Uh, Suf John Stevens is from, actually, it might be Petoskey. And I think anybody listening to this who's not from Michigan has never heard of Petoskey. That's way up. That's way up north. <laughs> it is farther north, Len, than, than where you grew up. Yep. Yeah, Lenny, you actually grew up in Florida, but you've lived in Rhode Island for a while. So maybe I should ask you if you have any favorite Rhode Island bands. Oh, geez. That's or a good it? question. I mean... You probably know about more bands that come from Rhode Island than I do, to be honest. I, I, I know you know the big names from Florida is obviously like Tom Petty, and uh, you've got the guys from uh, Skinnerd, right? <laughs> there was a band from Gainesville called Sister Hazel when I was growing up. That was kind of they had some radio hits, but yeah, Rhode Island bands. That's uh, I'm not sure. I know yeah. Ted, Ted Leo sure. lives in the same town as me right now. I saw him walking in a stroller on the bike trail the other day, but. <laughs> 
Ted Leo and the pharmacists. He's a real nice guy. I, yeah, I believe Ted Leo is from Rhode Island. Throwing Muses, unless I'm mistaken, are from, from Rhode Island. Okay. I know Gail Greenwood lives in Rhode Island now uh, from Belly. Belly being an offshoot from Throwing Muses, I, I think. Okay. I could be wrong on that. I know she's a current resident. But Rhode Island, I mean, we're about the size of a county in Florida. So I mean, it's, <laughs> it's uh, maybe a little bit difficult. Yeah, one other player who is a musician, and I didn't know this when I spoke to him during his career, but I've heard that Mark Trumbo is a fantastic musician uh, on multiple instruments. I don't know if either of you have heard that. I did not know that. No, he's a super utility musician, huh? That is what I've been told. And, uh, you know, very, very good underrated hitter in in his career as well. Hey, David, does he play the trombone? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you should. I had I had to do it. Yeah, I don't think I can top that. Hey, we're running out of time here, I think, but maybe some final thoughts. What's uh like what's a good music tidbit that we haven't hit on? Actually, Len, here's here's one. You know, you're a broadcaster. How many broadcasters do you know who are musicians? That's a good question. I know Josh Lewin has played uh, in, a, in a few bands over the years. I can't think of two. You know, Susan Waldman has uh, uh, sung the national anthem on a couple of occasions. And uh, I think that is one of the most impressive, scariest, perilous things I could ever imagine. Uh, I've done the seventh inning stretch at Wrigley Field a handful of times, but I cannot even fathom the idea of singing the national anthem. I think Tony Beasley's done it, right? A uh, longtime big league coach. But the fact that Susan Waldman actually did it, um, to me, that uh, elevates her to the upper echelon in broadcasting history right off the bat. Yeah, take me out to the ball game at Wrigley has always struck me as something scary. Lean out of that booth and, and start singing. Well, that one's an easy one. That's actually an easy song. It's short. And if you don't know the lyrics or if you get off key, you just hold the microphone out the window like Harry Carey did. <laughs> Yes, and you you probably would keep your shirt on when uh, when you did that. <laughs> oh yes, <laughs> yeah. Any final thoughts from you, Lenny? Yeah, so so I I started playing guitar in the minor leagues, and for the young pitchers out there, it helped me. I'm a left-handed pitcher, and I started playing guitar right-handed, and I noticed that it actually helped the dexterity, the flexibility, and the strength in my throwing hand. So if you're if you're looking to play guitar and you're brand new at it, buy it the opposite of how you throw so your fingers can gain some strength. I noticed that I started to get a little bit more movement on my ball just because of the difference in strength and whatnot. That's great advice. If you want to throw a sharper cutter, start playing the guitar. And play the opposite of which you throw. Yes. So Lenny, with with all the analytics and, and with all the video, and I ask ex players this all the time, what's the one thing that you wish you had when you started that 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 guys now have at their disposal? Is it the the edutronic cameras and all that stuff? Is there a particular uh, statistical thing? What do they have now that you wish you had then? As far as back then, I wish I had a, a better understanding of using my body to throw the baseball in, in regards to using my legs and torso. Back when I was learning how to throw and pitch, I remember I used to have coaches say, hey, use your lower body, and then period, end of sentence, end of paragraph. That was it. And now there's a lot of, of coaches out there, great coaches that teach the physics of throwing a baseball. It's part of the reason why a lot of pitchers are able to throw the ball harder in a more consistent level these days. Uh, I, I feel like the science is there 
where it really wasn't as much so when I was coming up as a youngster, as a teenager. So there's there's this great access to to young pitchers being able to to drive downhill and throw the baseball. And as far as statistics, I would I want pitchers to think. And David, don't don't hurt me, but I don't want pitchers <laughs> to be thinking about rotate you know RPMs as much. I want pitchers to be thinking about maybe hitting corners and spots and pitching a little bit more because there's such an emphasis on the analytics of of getting spin rate and this and that now versus back in the day, I guess. Right. And you can pitch to contact if you have great defense, because I am thinking back to when I was a young kid, when the Orioles had guys like Jim Palmer striking out, you know, maybe seven guys in inning, guys like Dave McNally and uh, Mike Cuellar striking out maybe four or five. They had Brooks Robinson, Mark Blanchard, and Paul Blair. So I think balls in play were going to get caught pretty frequently. Good stuff, Lenny. Thanks. The uh, music nerds have turned this back into a baseball conversation, so maybe we should close before we get too deep into baseball. Len, Lenny, thank you very much for coming on to uh, Fangraphs Audio. Dave, thanks for having me. Great talking with you, Len. Always a pleasure, David. Thank you, Lenny. Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio, and with me now is C. Trent Rosecrans of The Athletic. Trent covers the Reds, and we are going to talk about Joey Votto. Welcome, Trent. Hey, thanks, Jay. Thanks for having me. It's good to finally talk to you. I know we've been swapping a lot of uh, uh, direct messages lately about Joey Votto and other matters, and uh, this seemed like a natural fit because Votto's been in the news so much lately and because you've been uh, writing a ton about Joey Votto as well as the rest of the Reds, who are suddenly a very interesting team. So Yeah, for about the last 15 years, I've been writing a lot about Joey Votto, I guess. Yeah. So you've, <laughs> you've covered the Reds. What was uh, how, long, how long has it been? 15 years that you've been covering the Reds? I mean, it depends on like how you want to actually define find it my first year like around them was oh four i think oh wow okay yeah so and then like my first full year on the beat was oh seven okay and then there's been you know some ins and outs and some whatnots as careers <laughs> do at this time of our lives sure i don't have to tell you about that kind of thing but i've been in cincinnati since oh four and i've been covering baseball since in some respect since oh four so right so you've gotten to see the entirety of joey Votto's career then yeah, like I always say that I was in the, the All-Star game, the Futures game in Pittsburgh one year, and Homer Bailey was the big story for the Reds, and he was he was pitching for the U.S. team, and, you know, I think he hit 99 or 100 or something. Uh, must have been 99. I think it would have been a bigger deal if he hit 100. But, you know, he, he was the guy, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's my story. I'll go talk to the Canadian kid for my notebook lead. And the Canadian kid on the world team was Joe Votto. Right. <laughs> Wow. Some quiet kid. He seemed very nice and intelligent, but quiet. Uh-huh. So. Well, that's that's cool. So you've gotten you've gotten to see the whole thing. You've ha- you've covered him obviously then through the, through the ups, the MVP season, and uh, all those All Star appearances, and then you had to deal with uh, covering him during you know what looked to be his decline phase, particularly 2019 and the first half of last season. What was that like? Was it was it difficult? It's weird because like even going into 19 and even going into last year, my standard line was I like I never doubt Joey Votto, and it wasn't really until the beginning of this year that i started doubting joey Votto, right although we saw you know honestly even then though i saw some you saw some progression at the end of last year and you saw like it didn't take a scout's eye to see the difference in approach and you know you look at some of the underlying numbers you go oh 
wait, he is hitting the ball harder. He is pulling it more. Maybe there's something here, but I thought that maybe he could be better than he was last year. I didn't think I would be here in the middle of August saying, you know, he's in the thick of the MVP race. <laughs> right. That blows my mind. And and as someone whose mantra for many years is never, ever doubt Joey Votto, I had finally started to doubt Joey Votto. And once again, I'm wrong. Right. You know, it's interesting. I, I, I've i never been a beat guy, but I, I've covered, you know, I've been in New York here for the entirety of my baseball writing career. And, you know, as a fan, I got to I got to watch Derek Jeter and, and, and the core four. And then really, you know, once I started covering baseball, it was it was covering the mostly the decline phase, the dismal phase of Jeter's career. And watching that and covering that and asking the questions about that was just kind of wrenching. Especially if you're coming back to it as a fan and just like, you know, you got, you've, you've seen what this guy could do and it's just baseball is a humbling game and, and, and watching, you know, watching these superstars, you know, be humbled by it is, it's a lesson every time, even though, you know, we've, we're old enough that we've seen past generations of guys get, you know, go from being greats to, you know, on the way out. It, it is striking, but. Well, well, I mentioned it, you know, when I first started covering the Reds, you know, my first full year on the beat was 07. Yeah. And that means I'm there for the end of Ken Griffey Jr. Okay, wow, right, there you go. So it's not something that's completely foreign to me, you know? And it is weird. And and those are the two guys that really, when I look back at my career, if you want to talk about guys that have shaped who I am as a reporter, it's really those two. Uh-huh. And that's a pretty good pair, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but like yeah. Ken, I've, I feel like I know Ken relatively well, is, as well as you can in this job and, and when I was around him. And he's somebody I still talk to. Mm-hmm. Joey is somebody I've known since, you know, or covered since, you know, he was in minor league camp and I would be leaving the clubhouse and he was waiting for his ride because he still didn't have his car there. Oh boy. You know, and so I don't know. It it is so weird to think that I had that decline phase and I dealt like the start of my career was this. I mean, and you talk about being a fan, like a guy that I literally had a poster of on my wall Uh because I was born in 1975. Who's a baseball fan that was born in 1975 that didn't have a Ken Griffey Jr. poster on their wall. Right. So, yeah. So, but then I was there near that end. I was near, I was there when he got traded to the White Sox. And it was just, um, I saw him in Seattle. Actually, I remember his last actual pro home run was in spring training against the Reds and talking to him after that and having whatever kind of phone I had at the time, some grainy video and not knowing that there in Peoria was going to be the last, like not real home run because that had happened the year before, but the last home run that Ken Griffey Jr. would hit in a major league uniform. And so, yeah, I mean, like I hadn't even put this together, Jay, until we started talking. But (laughs) the funny thing is at, you know, less than a month shy of his 38th birthday, Joey Votto is just doing something that we haven't seen since really since bonds. Right. And I don't know that there's the same kind of baggage. Yeah, there's definitely not the same kind of baggage. I don't think there's anything close to the same kind of baggage. I want to back up a bit here. We talked about briefly about about Votto last season and, and just retracing retracing your steps and, and, and my own here. Late last August, he was benched. He was in the midst of something like an 0 for 18 skid. Uh, I have here, he was hitting 191 and slugging 326. And he decided to change some things, both in terms of his mechanics and his philosophy, and seems like I think it was almost exactly a year ago. I I don't I don't have the date here in, in my notes, but but it feels like it was pretty close here. What can you tell us about those changes? 
you know, I mean, like to the naked eye, they're there. And they were actually starting, started messing around with it right before he was benched. And what's funny is, and I've talked to David Bell about this. David tried to say everything but benched. Right. You know, David was saying, you know, a couple days, you know, give him some time, you know, this, this. And Joey is like, no, he benched me. I was benched. And it's it's almost that like, you know, you hear the Michael Jordan stories. Like in Joey's mind, he had to have been benched. Uh-huh. And he used it. But you could see it. I mean, it it's stark. I mean, it really is. Like, all you have to do is look at any Joey Votto at bat from, I don't know, 16 to the first half of 20. And then afterwards. Mm-hmm. And he looks, you know, he was crouched over. He was choked up. And then he started standing straight up, his, his hand by the knob. It's just completely different. And what it looks like, and I, I just kind of did a deep dive the other day into his first hit, which was a home run off the batter's eye against John Main in 2007 at Great American in a day game. And he looks so much more like that Joey Votto than he did the 17 season, which which Joey huh. will tell you was his masterpiece. Right. Interesting. You know, I, I was just reminded of this. I can't remember whether it was Votto or somebody else who said this and something I, w- I came across recently when I, when I was writing about some, some players ups and downs. He's, and it was, he said, you can't go- just Google your swing. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I mean, yes, you can go back and, and search, seek out the video, but you know, unless you know what you're looking for, like a certain segment of time, you know, you just grab a random at bat here. Or there, it's not always going to be the most the most representative one, but it is pretty interesting that you can pinpoint you know the specific phases by how he's standing here and and, and what he's doing. And so it's not just his mechanics; it's also his philosophy. No. He's he's decided to trade control of the strike zone, you know, sacrifice some control of the strike zone for power. He's still walking a ton. Not Joey Votto numbers, but but he's not still Joe, yeah, but not just like extreme Joey Votto numbers, but uh, numbers that are great for anybody else. And and uh, <laughs> right, but he's also he's he's thumping the ball again. I mean, like this is a guy who's not. I mean, he's got three hundred career home runs, but he's not power is not the first thing you think of when it comes to Joey Votto, and yet he's showing. Uh, uh, let's see, his slugging percentage right now five seventy. You have to go back, to, yeah, two thousand seventeen. But really, that's there's you have to go back to two thousand ten to find another season where he was above. Where he was at 570 or above. So this is really, you know, especially, and especially in a season where, you know, offense is down a bit, that's very impressive. It is. I mean, and, and he, he's got 26 home runs right now with a month and a half left. His career high in home runs is 37. That, that, that was his MVP year. Yeah. That's not wow. out of the question. No, it's not, isn't it? Yeah. It's, it's, uh, yeah. And, and he missed a month. Let's oh, not forget wow. he missed a month right. this year. Right, I forgot. Yeah, I, I, we, we tend to gloss over that, but you're right. That might be the one thing that you know kind of tends to keep him out of the MVP discussions too. Because I don't uh, know about that. Because think about it. Who, who are the MVPs? Who are the MVP discussions? I think to, to I think right now, I think because Tatis is back and healthy, I think he's uh-huh. probably the front runner. You know, we've he's lost missed Acuna. about a month, right? Yeah, he's missed, he's missed some time here and there. Harper's missed some time here and there. Harper's missed some time here and there. Obviously, Acuna's gone. Acuna, you know, Muncy's missed some time. Everybody has. Yeah, Brandon Crawford's missed some time. You're right. It's it's a, it's a it's a fair point. I mean, you know that Votto's maybe not the premium defender. That's that. Uh, no. that, that <laughs> that's well, and he's also not are. a premium like position. Right. Exactly. That's more what I meant. I mean, you know, Tatis is not a premium defender, but Tatis has been playing shortstop, and now you know, obviously this this midseason transition, if it takes, is going to be impressive if he can just hold his own. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, we're 
slugging first baseman, even with Freddie Freeman winning last year, that's no longer the archetype for the MVP where, you know, positional importance is a factor. You know, Votto got off to a slow start this year. I actually wrote about him in, in, mm-hmm. in mid-April saying it's too early to panic about Joey Votto. He was hitting for, a, I think, a 20 WRC plus through 10 games, but his stack cast numbers were still, were like, really robust is he a guy who looks at that kind of stuff oh so so jay you'll you'll love this you know you recall that he had the seven games in a row with the home run or six or whatever whatever the record is one less than that and we ask him about it because the game where it stopped he hit it off the yellow line at city field right and after the game somebody's like joey what are you thinking that you just missed this one he goes well you know I hit it here. I hit it this thing. It's this percent probability you oh, know, okay. of this. And he goes, but it started with one at Great American Ballpark where the expected batting average is 010. And it only gets out of Great American Ballpark. So really, it's one or the other. I mean, he is... He, he okay. was, he's admittedly, I think he called right. him in that same interview. He said, I'm something of a stat cast geek. Right. That's right. Okay. Now, now it's all coming back <laughs> to me here. I, I've written, I've written five things since then. So of course I can't possibly remember what was in that piece, but. Understood. Yeah. But like, yeah, no. So it's, it's crazy. Nobody knows those things more than he does. And it's, it's one of those where when I go to interview Joey and if I'm going to be bringing up stats. I have to do my homework first because right. he's he's not going to let me anybody else I can play with some generalities. Mm-hmm. I can't do generalities with him. Uh-huh. You just can't. So it, it's he's one of a kind, man. One of yeah. a freaking kind. Yeah. It's unbelievable. So he's collected some 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 impressive milestones this year and and uh I think he's I think somebody said he was the first to do to do all these in one year. 300th home run on April 30th, 1000th RBI on June 30th and then 2000th hit on August 16th just this past week. Second here. guy. Second one to get all those all those in one year. Who was the first? Uh Billy Williams. And oh. of course Joey brings that up in his press conference when he gets his 2000th hit oh, because very he's nice. Joey. Very nice. It's like he's got his own uh, Jason Stark working for him or something, huh? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, a lot of players they tend to downplay the significance of these milestones. They're like, "Oh, I'll I'll savor that when I'm retired. I'll look back on this or whatever." But it sounds to me like he's not a guy who does that. That he really does seem to be in the moment and impressed with the company he's keeping uh, as he climbs the charts. Is that right? Yeah, he you know he did a little of the usual what you would say in those positions, kind of that. And I asked him a little about like legacy, that kind of stuff, and he gave the usual answers. But you also know that he knows. He right. knows. He's a guy who loves baseball history. He really does. He's he's studied every great hitter. You know, it's the time honored story with Joey about his dog eared copy of of Ted Williams's book. Uh-huh. But it's it's absolutely true. You know, when <laughs> I remember talking to Leon Roberts, who was one of his first hitting coaches, okay. the organizational coach, and Leon said that he would always ask players when when they got into the big or got into pro ball. He said, "Who do you want to be?" And this, of course, is two thousand two, two thousand three. And everybody always says, oh, you know, Barry Bonds, Ken Griffey Jr., you know, those guys. And he was like, Joey said, Ted Williams. And I mean, like the guy is, he's just a savant. I mean, his his dog was named Maris. (laughs) Ah, that's funny. There's nobody like Joe. There's nobody like Joe. There's never been a baseball player like Joey. And there will never be one like like him again. I, I, I just, I feel lucky that I've gotten to cover him because it's just... 
I don't know. Yeah. He makes it all interesting and it makes it more interesting. And he's thoughtful. I mean, hell, I can't tell you the many times since I've been at the athletic um, and I've been able to do this where I'll talk to Joey about something and I'm just like, I'm just going to run this as a and a because I'm going to get the hell out of the way. <laughs> I mean, I'm supposed to be the writer, but I can't add anything because it's just so good. Right. And it's it's just Joe. Yeah. Well, part of the reason we're having this conversation is because I've been enjoying your, your Votto coverage so much over the you know over the last few months. Uh, that that big uh, – think of it as the Joey Mappo piece. But the, the, oh. the Joey Votto is the most interesting guy in the world type oral history of all the things he's into. And, and that – like, and just the, like, however many guys that we talked to, the three of us, Jason Jenks and, and Rustin Dodd and I, I think we all talked to about five guys each or something uh-huh. or six. Jay, I mean, you wouldn't believe what we left on the cutting room floor. I mean, we could have made oh, this. I can, I can imagine. Like, I mean, I think, I think it might even be smart. And I, I wouldn't be shocked if one of our bosses came in like, hey, do you guys have anything left over from that? <laughs> and we'd be like, <laughs> oh, yeah, we can do about three more. And get Bafo numbers. And I mean, hell, actually, I probably should. I had one that I wanted to do kind of based on that that was a little more focused about minor league Joey Votto. And it, it would just, I really should do it. I right, do, do it. Do it. Do it. I <laughs> want to see it next, next um, week. You might know an editor over. I'll tell, yeah, I'll tell Emma to lean on you here. Because, um. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, Jason, Jason, Russ, and I have all that stuff. And, like, you know, it keeps going on. And, and the Joey Mapo and. I don't know. Joey probably would hate for me to say this, but like, you know, the, the thing about the Mapo and that he mops his floor listening to Kendrick Lamar. Uh-huh. Like as soon as that piece came out, Joey was like, you know, some of that's he sent me a text, something about how some of these guys uh, made stuff up and I'm, I'm not like this, but I, I hate to admit this. And, and I hope I'm not breaking his confidence and I'm not going to show it to anybody if they ask. But I, I do have video of Joey mopping that he sent me we have the tapes joey i I have the tape i am not releasing that tape Um, but it exists and it is it's unbelievable i have shown it to my wife she thinks it's very very funny that's great getting back to the milestones here to me the 2000th was the big one because i've been so i've had that that number circled you know mentally for all season long kind of keep you know checking his totals every week or whatever and the significance of it for those of you listening who, who don't get it is that as somebody who keeps an eye on, on on the Hall of Fame, no player whose career took place after 1960 has been elected to the Hall with fewer than 2,000 hits. Okay. So crossing this line is means you're kind of a bona fide Hall of Fame candidate. And uh, what really struck me, though, was that uh, you know in the midst of this, uh, or just after this big seven home run streak, is that he surpassed the Jaws standard for first baseman. And I'd never really put this all together, but as a rule of thumb, it's amazing. The list of players with 2,000 hits who meet or exceed the Jaws standard at their position, that's the career, the average of a player's career baseball reference war and his seven-year peak war. The only one eligible players outside the Hall of Fame who meet those two, those two metrics are Barry Bonds, Manny Ramirez, Rafael Palmero, three steroid guys who you know, voters have their qualms about voting for them for better, for worse. Plus Bill Dolan, who's a a 19th, early 20th century shortstop, who will probably be up for election on the early baseball era committee ballot uh, later this year. And Scott Rowland, who is trending towards election on the writer's ballot. That's it. That's the list. 
I mean, every other pet candidate that you or I have is somebody who's a little short of one of those marks. Minnie Minoso, Dick Allen, Lou Whitaker, Bobby Gritch, Kenny Lofton, Carlos Beltran. Well, mm. Carlos isn't, mm. isn't eligible quite yet, but he will be uh, next wow. year. But I mean, everybody. It's just like this. It's that that is such a short list. And, and now Joey Votto has really, I think, as you and I have agreed in our in our in our direct messages uh, over the over the past uh, week or so, really does seem to have sealed the deal by getting to both of these at once here. So yeah, I I, I thought he was in because I figured he'd get to two thousand. Of course, I mean it was a matter of time, and he signed through what twenty twenty three. Yeah, yeah. So it was it was inevitable, but just the same. It's just one of those things where, you know, you want to watch the player get it and bask in the achievement and, you know, tell the haters to, you know, <laughs> to, but, but like day. he's not doing it at the end of his career and he should be, no. I mean, he's, he's going to be 38 here in September. Right. But just what this season has done it, you know, because it, it almost felt like it was one of those at the end, maybe I don't want to use the word limping there, but getting there and you're like, oh, my first my first story for the athletic when I went was like, is Joey Votto a Hall of Famer? And I kind of gotten to my point there that I'm like, he will eventually get in. And I think I had this discussion earlier this year with a round table with some other writers and mm-hmm. they were like, well, I think so. And I'm like, no, he's getting in. It's a question of how soon. Right. And now, you know, if, if he finishes this year representative, if this is another top 10 MVP season, now we're saying, oh, he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. And I don't believe in any real distinction. I know it exists, but like, I just don't think he's going to have to wait very long. Right. Not He's not going to be Scott Rowland, who was another guy that I saw the end of his career. Right. Right. Yeah. Well, and Ivano's probably also going to have, you know, getting back to that sort of that first ballot distinction, which is artificial but is there and it's one of those things where if you choose to celebrate that well okay i i get it but he's also going to be you know almost all certainty here he's going to be a, a one team guy and we just yes. don't see very many of those guys anymore you know like chipper jones or i mean there's there's it's a pretty short list of of, of single team hall of famers in the free agency era you know guys just don't get to stick around their one team they you know they end up hanging on with another team after the after they outlive their usefulness and you know with Votto, this contract has been so so, you know, has at times been seen as something of a burden to the point that they couldn't get rid of him if they wanted to. Now it's paying off and he's contributing to uh, a winning effort. And it's tough to imagine that, that the Reds would, would force him out here, given what he's showing. And honestly, having talked to Joey and knowing Joey, I don't know that he would want to put on a different uniform. Sure. I think it is important to him. I think I think he does see some point of pride in wearing only one uniform his entire career. Right. Well, the Reds are, are certainly interesting this year. They've uh, at this writing they've they've pulled uh, pretty close to in the, in the wild card race and Votto has a chance to be, you know, or he's he, he is right in the thick of it. What's it been like to cover this team? It's been a while. I mean, obviously everybody, you know, they made it last year, but then everybody made it last year. What's it been like to cover this team as they're fighting for a playoff spot? Because it's something that hasn't been, hasn't happened uh, for the Reds in a full season since what, 2013? 13, and they made the wild card and lost in Pittsburgh. Right. <laughs> Which, yeah, that's how long ago it was. It was Pittsburgh. Yeah, Pittsburgh. Jeez, okay. But yeah, it's been interesting because this is a team that kind of, they were expected to contend last year. Because all the moves they made, the the adding Mustakas Castellanos, mm-hmm. Miley Akiyama, those all had like differing levels of success. But it's been interesting to watch that not quite work, and they're kind of in the same spot this year, where you know they're, they're they're okay, but the key to talking about whether they will 
be able to win the wild card, it doesn't start with them. It starts with who they play. It's their schedule. And that is one of that is one of the big advantages they have. It's also one of the big advantages the Cardinals have. And 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 so don't I don't think you can overlook the Cardinals, even though I don't think that team's very good either. But you know that's a lot of games against Cubs, a, a, a team that the Reds just lost a series to at home. Mm-hmm. But the like you know you look at the Reds' upcoming schedule, it's you know four against the Marlins and the Brewers and the Marlins, Cubs. Okay, so the last month is Detroit, Chicago, St. Louis, Pittsburgh, the Dodgers, Pittsburgh, Washington, the White Sox, and then Pittsburgh. That's a yeah. lot of Pittsburgh. It's a lot of Pittsburgh and it's a lot of dogs. Look, from from our standpoint here at Fangraphs here, looking at the uh, the playoff odds page, we have the strength of schedule, which is the weighted opponent's winning percentage. Mm-hmm. The Padres, who they are now at this, as we speak here, they're currently a game and a half behind the Padres. The Padres opponents down the stretch have a 541 winning percentage. That's a lot of Dodgers and Giants. Yes. Uh, the Reds have a 465 winning percentage. That's, That's a lot of pirates. 80 points of, of or so here. The, the Padres have the hardest schedule. The Reds have the weakest schedule. This is in terms of the National League. It's that far apart. That's just astounding. And so we've got the uh, uh, the Padres with a 44.3% chance of making the playoffs. So the Reds at 39.1%. Yeah. I mean, that's really where it goes. And um, they've got a shot. Of course, you lose two or three at home to the Cubs. Yeah, it's not helping you. But, uh, but you still have a lot of pirate games. Right. You still have a lot of pirate games. And, and at the very least, you get to cover a very interesting team. So that's kind of cool. And Joey Votto. And Joey Votto. And Joey Votto. All right. Well, that about covers it. I'm sure we could we could uh, stay on this podcast and, and I could milk uh, more Joey Votto stories out of you. But I think we've got uh, enough for, for one segment here. So, Trent, thank you so much for coming on and talking about Votto and look forward to reading you at The Athletic. Jay, it's a it's a pleasure as always talking to you, and uh, you you know what I think about your work and and oh, how much thanks, I look Trent. up to to what you do and and how much I love it. Oh, that's very kind of you to say, and, and right back at you for Fangraphs Audio. I'm Jay Jaffe. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Len, Lenny, and Trent for joining us. Remember to check out that Fangraphs.com shop and consider a membership for yourself or for a friend. And get yourself subscribed to the Fangraphs newsletter if you haven't already. We have a lot going on over at the website every week, and the newsletter is a great way to hear about what we are up to. Thank you for listening. Have a good weekend.